0: Okay, so we're going to get to some more cases and uh, I think just one case, but uh, we'll see how it develops and it'll uh, kind of emphasize some of the early points made during the day, incorporate some of the things you've already heard, and uh, hopefully add some new elements to what we're talking about. Here's our case. We have a 55-year-old gentleman who is co-infected, hep HIV. His labs are shown here. So, AST is 48, ALT is 39, his alfos is 143, his billy's 1.1, 1. 1, hemoglobin's 13.7, platelet count's 133. Uh, he has no symptoms, his physical exam looks pretty normal, Um, his CD4 count is 325, and his HIV is not detected at a detection level of 50, and he's on and has been on roptagravir and tracidabine tenofovir for a while. So everyone got that? Okay. So here's your first question. He's found to have HCV genotype 1, no subtype available, high viral load. He wants to know if the stuff on the HCV commercial would work. And you now do one of the following. You can order an ultrasound. You can request a liver biopsy be done. You could do a one of the other non-invasive marker tests that we talked about, or you could try to obtain a subtype. Go ahead and vote. Oh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> what would Daenerys do? <laughs> Okay. So most of you would order another, or order a non-invasive marker assay, and some of you would get an ultrasound. Um, So for one reason or another, you're all winners, um, because there's no wrong answer here. Um, I saw this patient's Platelet count of 133. The AST was a little bit higher than the ALT, which we kind of see that flip in in advanced fibrosis and cirrhosis. So I'm a little worried already that this patient has advanced liver disease, and uh, getting an ultrasound before considering therapy is not a wrong thing to do. It's a right thing to do because. You don't want to start treating someone who already has a liver cancer and miss that. So, uh, yes, I think that's fine. A liver biopsy is not something we would routinely do, as I told you before. But it's never wrong if you want to stage your patient and feel extremely confident of the results. Um, Other non invasive markers, you probably already have all the data you need to do that, so why not just do it? Sure. And obtain a subtype, uh, you may be worried that I don't know if this is a 1A or a 1B, we only know it's a genotype 1. Why'd the lab do that to me? Uh, So you could try sending it back to the lab and trying again. You could try sending it to a different lab and see if you get a Better answer, and sometimes you do. So everyone's right. <coughs> Whoops, that was go back. Oh no, that's ah. So in this case, this is not right. The order's I'm missing some slides here. Do we? This is this should be perfect, <laughs> and it's not. The next one was an ultrasound. The next picture should have been an ultrasound. Okay, that's the that's the next thing. Huh. Okay, picture got lost. So I actually got the ultrasound. And the ultrasound showed a lesion in the liver. And what's also awesome. missing is the questions related. The questions coming up. No. Now, that's it. This, is, this is the next set of questions. So, so I'll tell you what it was. There was a lesion in the liver. And the question was, what do you do now? And your choices were, do you seek help? call a hepatologist. You call a liver surgeon and ask them to take that spot out of the liver. That's always wrong. Hmm? Mm-hmm. That's always wrong. You <laughs> you go to interventional radiology, have them put a needle in it. Or you say, I don't really care, the patient has hep C and I'm going to treat it. So that's question No, that's the second round. I don't know if no. that's yeah. yeah we're missing one, one question since um, which is weird because we just gave this last week in Florida and everything worked mm-hmm. so actually I'll tell you in Florida the majority of people selected send them to radiology to stick a needle in it and uh, you wouldn't do that. That is actually incorrect. Uh, but in fact, that's what many people do. And and because the radiologist, after they see this, they say, oh, yeah, but we can put a needle in that and get you a sample. The trouble is that if this is a liver cancer, you end up seeding the tract. And so we don't want to do that, so we do not put a needle into it. We don't want to send the patient to a general surgeon to take something out because that will usually kill the patient in the setting of cirrhosis. Even when the surgeon says I can do that, so um, unless you know that it's an experienced liver liver transplant surgeon, um, and. Uh, You wouldn't want to treat the patient because you didn't know what it was. In this case, I said, I'm not sure what this is, and the next step is, what do you do next? There was another set of questions with that, and the answer is you you would get a multiphasic CT, which in some centers is known as a biphasic CT, and in some centers is known as a triphasic CT, and some places, multiphasic CT. But it's probably most important thing that you know that that is not the same as a contrast CT. Everyone know the difference? Anyone not know that the difference? You're not pretty shy. This is the time. I, don't know. I don't know. You don't know the difference. So so when you send a patient for a CT, typically they will ask you, Contrast or no contrast. Or they have a protocol and they do it with and without. They put the patient in a CT scanner, they do a scan, they walk into the room, the tech walks into the room, they inject some contrast, and then they go and they chat with their friends about, did you go out last night, have a good time, yeah, tell me about your date, whatever it is. And 10 minutes later, they tell the patient, okay, we're ready to scan and they they push the button and they scan again and they get a contrast CT. That type of CT will miss almost all important liver lesions and should never be used to look for lesions in the liver. So what you need is a multiphasic, biphasic, triphasic, and again, there's local custom as to what you call it, but they're really all the same thing. In this type of CT, which your techs particularly don't like to do, they do the injection and essentially as they're starting the injection, the scan starts. This is why they don't like to do it, because they have to be in the room with the patient during the scan. And the scan starts and then within 45 to 60 seconds, they rerun the whole scan again. So now you get baseline with no contrast, arterial phase, so the arterial feed into the blood vessels in the liver, and then you get the washout of the arterial phase into a venous phase, and then you get the clearance of, of everything from the liver and equalization because the, the contrast is now distributed throughout the body which is what you end up seeing if you wait 15 minutes and talk about your activities the night before while waiting to do the scan. Can you not do MRI? Hold that for a minute. Okay. (laughs) Yes. So this is a multiphasic CT of the lesion that you should have seen on my ultrasound picture, and uh, it turns out that in this case, the patient has uh, the characteristics of a hemangioma, which is the enhancement in all phases matches the blood pool, and HCCs, liver cancers, exhibit a washout early after an initial peak arterial filling, mm-hmm. and so you differentiate one from the other. Hemangiomas are exceedingly common. Their size and frequency increases with age of the person, and by some estimates, uh, at some point in our lives, 30-40% of the population will get at least one hepatic hemangioma, So they're very common lesions. We don't stick a needle in them because when you do, they bleed like stink. And and that's... it's You could actually have a perfectly healthy patient that you end up in the ICU with or dead shortly after your CT scan. So uh, we don't want to stick a needle into those things. And they're of no clinical consequence. When they get really big, then they're at increased risk for spontaneous rupture and uh, especially with something like car accident or playing football and trauma, but most of them tend to be about that big and not a big deal, so we don't worry about it. That's what this patient has. So, we figured out what this patient has And then we continue to say, okay, that part's done. So we calculate the FIB4 using our non-invasive markers. Some of you want to, most of you want to the non-invasive markers. It comes out to 3.18. So that is below 3.25, which is a high probability for advanced fibrosis cirrhosis. So we set this patient for transient elastography. FibroScan, and those come back 17.5, which pretty strong evidence for cirrhosis, but the IQR over M, all those numbers on that report matter, and the IQR is the interquartile range of variability of the 10 samplings done during a FibroScan test. And the manufacturer says that if it's under 30%, you can use the result. But there's a number of studies that say that if it's over 24%, your reliability of the test is significantly decreased. So now I'm really confused. I have my basic lab clinical suspicion that says it could be cirrhotic. I have physical exam shows me nothing. <clears throat> I have a Fib 4 that says patient probably not advanced fibrosis, meaning below high likelihood of F3 or F4. And I have a poorly done fiber scan that says the patient is cirrhotic. That's very confusing. So I know what I would do, but I want to know what you would do, and your choices <laughs> are Treat the patient with DAAs, obtain a liver biopsy, or obtain fibro test, which is the one test we haven't gotten. It cost about $300, so I don't routinely order it. It takes two weeks to come back from uh, hmm. Quest, I guess. One company in the U.S. runs. Go ahead and vote. Okay, so now about half of you are saying, I've had enough, I don't know, I'm ready to treat the patient. Um, But a third of you are looking at me and saying, oh, he's a hepatologist. I bet he wants a biopsy now. And some of you are going to try to get that fibro test and send it out, and that might be the tiebreaker. So, um, again, there's any of these answers is a viable answer. Um, I am a little unsure because I don't just have things varying around is this advanced fibrosis cirrhosis. I have some tests saying he doesn't even have advanced fibrosis and I'm thinking that's going to affect my long-term management in this patient. So I went ahead and got the liver biopsy. And here it is, and this patient is cirrhotic. He has a nodule there. He's got a nodule there. You can't see the edge of it. Here it's almost a nodule, not quite, but uh, that would still be bridging fibrosis, but it's at least advanced fibrosis, but because you can see a complete nodule, this is cirrhosis so new decisions lie before us you would now obtain an egd for variceal screening start treatment for hep c i'm really getting ready to treat this patient and, and i'm getting tired of all of these things getting in my way Order an egd and start treatment for hep c or say This is over my head, I'm referring to a hepatologist for treatment and evaluation. Go ahead and work. Okay. So, a couple will obtain an EGD and wait for the answer, but the majority of you are going to order the EGD and start treatment, and I think that's a reasonable answer, and that's what I'm going to be thinking about doing right now. Um, But nearly a quarter of you are going to say, no, I'm going to refer this, and you know what? That's never wrong. It's never wrong to to say, I need some help. I need some guidance. So um, based on your level of comfort, your experience, I think either of those answers is fine. And uh, if you want to get your EGD first, that's not wrong either. But you do have to decide what you're going to do, and so which one of these regimens would not be acceptable in this patient. Go ahead and vote. vikings (laughs) okay didn't know that one okay so the majority of you picked glucaprosphere preventosphere for eight-week regimen let's see what the guidelines say the first thing when I look down the list of acceptable genotype 1 with cirrhosis I see that they are all at least 12 weeks, so an eight-week regimen is not the right regimen, and the majority of you are correct. But we do have a number of choices, um, and you've already heard it several times, but just referring back to the guidelines on a regular basis is a good thing to do. They are updated. They're not changing as frequently as... When I was originally on this Guidelines Committee, we were in a period of rapid change when we first started it, and, uh, and every couple of months there were new updates, but, uh, but they do change and uh, it's meant to be a living, active document, so you should look at it. And, uh, so you have a number of choices here, um, and uh, you go from there. Okay, so again, we're out of order. The next, this is supposed to be the ultrasound picture. Here, actually, it's here. Okay, now, well, let's, this is a problem. I don't know why these are out of order now. Um, So, the patient. There's missing the slide. The patient calls you uh, while you're waiting for the insurance approval for the drug that you've selected and uh, says, I've gained 15 pounds and my feet are swollen. And then what would you do now? And the answer is you would order another ultrasound and you do that and Just to orient you, if you don't read ultrasound, this is the side of the patient looking through the skin, and this is the liver, and this is a layer of ascites. So this patient, you just had an ultrasound on him and a CT scan a few weeks before, and now he has ascites. How could that be? Well, that transition from compensated to decompensated liver disease sometimes appears to happen overnight. And uh, you have to be ready for that. This is not a static situation in a cirrhotic patient. People are shocked at, at how quickly, I was fine and now I am sick. And uh, things that tip people over, a multitude of things will tip people over, but a bad case of the flu will tip you over. I had one patient with cirrhosis in the days of interferon, I I treated him a miserable course of interferon. I cured him in a cirrhotic patient, which was pretty uncommon. And uh, shortly after he was cured, he went to change a light bulb uh, in his bathroom, and he stood on his toilet. The toilet seat slipped, he fell, he broke his hip, and went into decompensated liver disease and died two weeks later. So. you need to be thinking about that and uh, and be aware that your patients can decompensate quickly and you don't ha- you don't <laughs> just stay the course. If something changes, you have to reevaluate that patient. This is the question of the Yeah, this is what happens after. Oh, I see. So he gained 15 pounds, but was that of order? Again? This is this the same order for Melvin? No, no, I would back. Yeah. Can't be. So, because it was while we're waiting, and then the picture came later. Um, So, these were your options. What to do now? So, um, we already said we're going to see the ultrasound because I showed you the ultrasound. So, now you have to decide what you're going to do, and your choices are start... Sperano-lactone, 50 milligrams and Lasix 20. Do a diagnostic tap, contact a transplant center. Some combination of one and two, or one, two, and three, or send this patient for tips. majority of you pick 1, 2, and 3, but some of you are going to start aldactone and Lasix, and a few of you are going to do a diagnostic tap only, and some will start the Lasix and do the tap. Um, and no one's sending the patient for tips, so we'll talk through each of these. The, the correct answer is actually 1, 2, and 3, so many of you got that right. Um. So, in any patient with new onset ascites, we always do a diagnostic tap, and we're doing that to confirm that the etiology of this is is associated with portal hypertension, which we get by calculating the SAG, the serum albumin to ascites albumin gradient. Um, and we're looking for other things that could be causing ascites. There are multiple other causes of ascites. Um, it's likely to be portal hypertension in this case, but uh, we always look, and we always, at least up front, do a cytology on that specimen as well to make sure that this isn't due to parotelial carcinoma um, You would in a patient with portal hypertension associated ascites, start aldactone, spironolactone, and, and Lasix furosemide, and it's always started at this dose in this ratio. So the most common mistake I see is people start just Lasix, but this is not congestive heart failure. You're not treating this patient. To try and drain them over a day or two, you're treating liver disease, and the appearance of ascites is the result of a combination of physiologic processes resulting from portal hypertension, including low albumin from the liver, leading to decreased oncotic pressure gradients, and uh, uh, changes in vascular resistance, and differences in atrial natriuretic factor that are affecting kidney function, and so. Actually, the key drug in management is the aldactone, not the Lasix, but it works very slowly. And so a little bit of Lasix along with it gives you a bit of a boost. We do not call a patient refractory ascites, meaning the drugs aren't working until one of two things happens. You get to a dose, you double the dose every two weeks, and so your next step up would be (coughs) 140, 280. When you get to 400 of aldactone and you still have a problem with ascites, that's refractory ascites. Unless you get a rising creatinine and you're throwing the patient into renal failure with your diuretics. That also is refractory ascites. Um, The minute you see the development of ascites you have a decompensated patient and remember back to the beginning when we talked that's a reason to get on the phone and call your transplant center they're not going to see that patient either, but that's when you start thinking about getting this patient to a place making an appointment and you can start doing these things in the meantime um, Everyone know what TIPS is? Transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt? So, TIPS is a way to reduce portal pressures and it's a treatment for both bleeding varices and for ascites. But you would not do that early. That is a treatment for refractory ascites in selected patients. So, this patient has new ascites, not refractory ascites. We wouldn't consider TIPS at this stage. What do you do for patients who don't have ascites but have quite a bit of lower extremity edema? Yeah, just, we also start aldactone and lasix in those if we think that the liver disease is contributing to the problem, Mm -hmm. because that's that's actually often the first presentation. We also look at those very closely, because a lot of those patients have... uh, uh, developing pulmonary hypertension as well which is helping to drive the process we get autopulmonary pulmonary syndrome mm-hmm. um, portal pulmonary syndrome and we'll do echo with dopplers on those patients and uh, <clears throat> pressures are elevated they're sort of contributing to this process of, of not being able to return blood mm-hmm. um, and so and get it up through the liver so uh, we do evaluate for that as well. Okay. So, patient cirrhotic. You now have a decompensated cirrhotic. Which regimen would you use for HCC screening? Go ahead and vote. Okay, so you were listening, and the majority of you would do what I do, and a number of you would do what the AASLD says to do, which is just that, Um, and does anyone know why? Like, why not scan this patient yearly, or do a CT yearly? Why is it six months? Good, that's exactly right. She said the doubling time of the tumor. So that's that's half the story. The other half is the resolution of ultrasound. So most ultrasounds, ultrasound techs, really. Let's talk about the techs because the techs do the ultrasound, and uh, the average ultrasound tech can see a lesion for the first time at between one and one and a half centimeters in size. I mean, a really good liver trained ultrasound tech who's been working in a transplant center can find half centimeter lesions. But, but outside of that setting, you have to know the limitations of the field, the average the, the field, and it's one to one and a half centimeters has a very high percentage yield if you test it around the country. The doubling time of of how to say a carcinoma is four to six months. So that means that if you see a one centimeter or one and a half centimeter lesion, let's say that it's one and a half on the day you find it, then in four to six months, it's going to be three centimeters. Okay, so what? Well, there's something called the Milan Criteria. The Milan criteria are the criteria for liver transplantation, curative liver transplantation in a person with liver cancer. And the Milan criteria say that you can have one tumor up to 5 centimeters in diameter, or three tumors whose total diameter does not exceed 9 centimeters. So... If you have one tumor and it's one and a half centimeters at the time it's found, in six months it will be three and and you found it within the Milan criteria. If you did yearly screening, that one and a half centimeter tumor is actually likely to be six centimeters. You're now outside of Milan and that patient is no longer routinely there's, it gets a little complicated here because of downstaging, but essentially not a candidate for transplantation, and you are now putting that patient into uh, um, kind of a palliative maintenance therapy with a, with a tumor drug like sorafen. So um, we have a narrow window. That's why we want to optimize our chances of finding liver tumors early. They've gotta be from less than that one centimeter size to five centimeters in general to have a really good chance of curing that patient of their liver cancer. Um, So that's what we need to do. And uh, the combination of things does it best. Why not just ultrasound? Well, the guidelines say it, but the guidelines were written by uh, a Canadian who's, who's, very well-known hepatologist, but he also spends a lot of time thinking about the cost. AFPs don't cost a lot, but anything that's extra, he doesn't like to do. And when he wrote the guidelines, he convinced everyone that we shouldn't do it. So you know, I I like to tell people that guidelines are like sausage. They're a bunch of stuff squashed together and you never know who's in it. And yeah. I have been on multiple guideline committees. Christie's on the guidelines committee now and and you sort of trade and negotiate like mm-hmm. something you feel passionate about, maybe you can get that through, but it's usually at the expense of something else. Mm-hmm. And and so because we don't have all the answers, we have strong feelings based on anecdotal evidence often and not solid evidence of what goes into those guidelines. okay how would you stage the liver disease in this patient you could use child's pew meld or no need to stage when the patient looks ill enough i'll refer them to the transplant <laughs> So most of you would do MELD, some would do Child's Pew. Um, So both have meaning The Child's Pew is going to help us if we're still thinking about treatment. But the MELD is now really where the money's at because MELD is what's used to determine listing and priority. So people get listed at MELDs over 10. They essentially never get transplanted until MELD is 15. Because it isn't until you get to 15 that the risk of doing the surgical and other complications associated with transplant are exceeded by the survival of that patient. So, if you do the transplant. So, MELD is what we need here. And then, MELD is used to determine the priority. The priority varies. So we transplant most of our patients in a MELD of 25, but if Christy is sending this patient in New York, patients rarely get transplanted until their MELD is 30 or more. So the country is divided into numerous regions, and there's different chance of getting organs at different levels of illness around the country. This is a question for me. I just like to know what people think. Do you think that liver transplantation is an option for your HIV infected patients with liver disease? Go ahead and vote. Okay, so yes, that's great. Where do you send your patients? Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. <have> Boston, maybe <laughs> Leahy. Okay. So I don't think Leahy does these. I think they really do transplant. On, in HIV now? Oh, I don't know if they do in HIV. Oh no, they be. definitely do transplant. Yeah. But that, that's yeah. a good question. I, I don't. So, think. so it's important because there's. 138 liver transplant centers in the United States and currently only about 30 are doing transplant in HIV and the reasons are here this is uh, from the, uh, the NIH solid organ transplant HIV study uh, and co-infected patients with hep C did worse than matched HCV, non-HIV, infected controls. Transplant centers live or die on their survival statistics. You could lose insurance selection as a transplant center if you fall below certain levels. And In fact, at some levels, by doing harder patients, you can lose your, your UNO certification to even do transplants. So the majority of centers in the United States do not do HIV transplant. And uh, Mass General does, I believe. pretty sure they do. Uh, BI does. um, And uh, I don't think Leahy does. So so, uh, you need to call the right center, not just if a center says, no, we don't do that, take that as an answer. So most of you think you can do it, and that's good, but you've got to take it a step further if you actually have this patient in your clinic. There's a very interesting thing that, when this study started, the assumption was that patients with HIV are already somewhat, you know, suppressed, and therefore, they wouldn't have a problem with rejection, and it turned out that they have a higher rate of rejection than those without HIV, and uh, so they actually often require more attention to immunosuppressive regimens than other patients. There are some things we could do to narrow the gap with HCV, HIV patients um, in terms of improving the odds, and if there's a set of criteria that are followed, can actually narrow it to almost a non existent gap and make it safe in those patients. Has to do with the age of the donor that you use and not doing combined liver kidneys in HIV patients because that seems to be associated with big problems. Mm -hmm. So you called your transplant center. The patient has an appointment to transplant hepatology in eight weeks. That's pretty good. A lot of centers are going to tell you, don't get them in for three or four months. So what are you going to do now? You should treat the HCV while waiting. You should not treat the HCV without transplant center approval. Go ahead and vote. So about a third of you are ready to treat. You've been, you've been itching to treat since the <laughs> beginning. Um, but the correct answer is this one. I'm not saying you're not going to treat, but you have to talk to your yourself. And the reason is that, that in many cases, and depending on where you're at in the country, your patient will get a liver sooner If they're HCV positive, than if they're HCV negative, because of the availability of HCV organs, and I suspect that that's now true in this area, where, where I live, we're we're one of the really big hotspots for the opioid epidemic. We've had problems with uh, carfentanil mixed with uh, with other agents, and carfentanil, for those that don't know, is a veterinary uh, uh, opioid, and uh, it causes sudden death, and so we have had a ton of tragic deaths among very young people uh, that uh, have given us a plethora of HCV-positive organs. Now there is an effort to use HCV-positive organs in HCV negative people, but that's done under experimental protocol only. So the first offer for those organs that are HCV positive go to an HCV positive recipient. The difference could be up to one to two years of waiting time to get such an organ. So that's what we would do. If the center wants you to treat, then you now have to say what am i going to treat with because now you have a decompensated patient and you already heard christy talk about decompensated patients and wanting to stay away from certain regimens uh, particularly those that contain protease inhibitors because those drugs have been associated with development of fulminant hepatic failure in in those patients so uh, there are regimens that you can use and Again, you would not be doing this without a discussion in the transplant center. When we treat such a patient, we typically get them listed first so that we have a way to save them on the back end, if we're going to treat them. This is the SOLAR-1 trial, treatment in decompensated patients or cirrhotic patients. Childs A are the compensated, B and C are the decompensated, and you can see that while it's a stepped down still pretty darn good response rates in those patients so uh, these patients are treatable but you need to select the right regimen and uh, think about who you're treating this is what i was telling you Uh, this is this is a recent study that looked at the timing and the benefit um, and basically it says it depends what meld you would try to transplant your patient at and whether you treat them before or after is dependent on the U.S. region that you're in and what the typical time it takes to get an organ in that region. There are places in the country that transplanted melds as low as 17 and 18. And, uh, I mean, that's why, like, Steve Jobs went from California to Tennessee to get a liver. So I will stop there and summarize by saying that that don't forget to stage your patients. It it helps determine not only liver disease, viral disease management, but the liver disease management as well. Compensated cirrhotics can and should be treated, but remember the issues of surveillance and be aware of the risk of decompensation which can happen overnight. And be aware that liver transplant is an option for decompensated patients. Uh, with both HCC and in many patients with HIV, um, and it, it is life saving and it's amazing, and you need to avail yourselves of it for your patients. So I'll stop there. I'm happy to take any questions about this subject.